Hello and welcome to the Damn Interesting Week podcast. We have another great list of articles to talk about with you today. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. And I'm Angela Epley. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Our first link comes from Popular Mechanics by Courtney Linder, and it's called Vibrating Clothes Could Alter the Perception of Your Own Body. And well, that could be good news for your mental health. <laughs> that doesn't sound, that sounds a little risque. I don't know. It, it, <laughs> you know, interestingly, they didn't really go there in terms of what this particular project was trying to do. But the idea was when you wear clothing, it's not only a way for you to express your style, express yourself, but it's also something that can affect how people respond to you as well, right? Like sometimes if you're wearing like your favorite shirt or killer pair of shoes and you kind of have a pep in your step. Yeah, it's like a confidence booster. Exactly right. And that's what they were mostly going with here is not just to kind of titillate, to kind of refer back to your earlier <laughs> uh -huh. implication, but they found a way to make clothing not only feel good on the skin, but feel good to the mind. And the way they do this is by altering vibration patterns within the clothing. So the, they were interested in promoting perceptions that are imperceptible to others. So are these clothes like electrified? Like how do they power themselves? Yeah, they're very, very lightly electrified, so to speak. So they basically conducted two experiments with two different prototypes of what they're calling their magic lining clothing. So <laughs> they used a garment covered in 21 off-the-shelf vibration monitors linked to an Arduino microcontroller board. And they had these little motors activated in different combinations to create four different vibrational patterns. And these are like super tiny, super subtle, just little bitty things, right? So it doesn't feel as obvious or obtrusive. And mm -hmm. so they kind of started simple and they kind of moved into complex ideas that needed several directions of rows. So it started off as like different points. And then it moved into different kind of patterns of these points and then moved from there. And so there's some really interesting pictures where they show sort of like where the sensors are aligned in horizontal rows. Then they've got another one that's kind of like in a starburst pattern. And what they found is that patterns that are starting in the center of the back and moving outward made the subjects feel like their body was made of air or water or sand. And they reported feelings of relaxation, strength and confidence. Huh. But when the pattern was reversed and they moved inward on the back, the respondents felt heavy, rigid, anxious, and like they were, quote, made of concrete or being slightly pushed by some external force. Whoa. Ooh, right? It, I mean, such a dramatic difference in terms of having this different layout repeated over time. They have fluffy non-woven polyester and black waffle polyester as in addition to these patterns. And so they basically just kind of distilled it to three different concepts. One is called water. It signifies flowing, waves, smooth movement, or even cold. Then there's cloud, which is light, soft, warm, airy, fluffy, cozy, slow, and calm. And then they have rocks, which is cold, stiff, polished, square, edgy, sharp, heavy. I would be curious to try this. I mean, I know there are certain yoga poses, like if you do the Superman pose where you've got your hands on your hips and your chest out and your shoulders back and your legs spread. If you do this pose for, you know, several minutes, like before an interview or a big meeting, right. it can actually boost your confidence. Yeah, no, I've seen, I, there's a whole TED talk on like power positions and stuff. Yeah. And just as, as you were describing it, that whole like center of your back from the middle outward, 
as I'm imagining what that would feel like traced on my back, my shoulders went back. Like there's there's this distinct kind yeah. of sensation where you're like, oh, I got to stand up straighter for that. But I, I, I don't know. I'm a little nervous about the ones on the back because I am insanely ticklish right up beneath my shoulder blades, like unbelievably ticklish in between my shoulder blades. So that one I don't think would be for me. But. Yeah. The idea of customizing something like right. this based on a template that's been tested through different iterations, that would be really interesting to understand if people have specific conditions that they wanted to address or combat or even amplify based on what this is doing. Because a lot of it is questionably a placebo effect, but also kind of demonstrably mind over matter is definitely a right, thing. It works. And, yeah. And there are already these different apps that are meant to help your posture where you put like a little wearable device, you know, a certain part of your body. And if your body starts drooping, it kind of gives you a light vibration to be like, ah, 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 you're sit getting up, into a slouch. <laughs> exactly. I can see some applications as well for like, I'm imagining like some of the water, the cooling ones that are less about confidence and more about like kind of getting you into the zone or maybe if you have a creative profession, you know, you're a writer or a musician and you need to yes. sort of tune out everything else and sort of lock in. It could almost become kind of a Pavlovian thing where if you're always working with this particular setting on it sort of gets you right into the zone right when you need to be. Yeah, as long as it didn't distract and somehow enhanced it, I'm sure that different people are going to react differently. And it would be really cool to see widespread adoption of this kind of thing. That would be neat. Although, I, I mean, until they get like a lot of different fashion options, everyone would know you were wearing the, <laughs> the, the waffle black polyester fashion of the season. <laughs> Super fair, but they do refer to this as a liner. So oh, I guess so the idea—it's it. magic lining clothing. I mean, mm. they've got some video and stuff like that that kind of goes into it, where they've got like super futuristic projection images over the person. So it's hard to tell how much of this is stylized application versus right. part of the experiment. But worth keeping an eye out for, or skin receptor sensor. That's right. Keep a finger to. out for it. There you go. <laughs> Very nice. Next link. Next link. So this is about the first worldwide virus. There have obviously been many viruses before, but this is the first one that really caused a global, uh, I should say computer virus. I should mention that. Ah, um, <laughs> I just yes. realized uh -huh. I had, hadn't specified. Yes, the first uh. <laughs> worldwide computer virus that kind of covered the whole world and brought down systems everywhere simultaneously. You may remember right. it. It was, it was in May of 2000. It was called the love bug virus. <gasps> I remember this. And I, I knew people who got hit by it, who they, they got tricked by it and they clicked the attachment and their computers were really, really damaged. And what oh. it was, was it sent an email that had an attachment called love letter for you, which was, of course, meant to be very enticing. People would open it up and then oh, yeah. it would overwrite files. It stole passwords and then it automatically sent itself to everyone in the user's Microsoft Outlook contact list. So if they, if they didn't use Microsoft Outlook, it didn't do any good. But, of course, a lot of people used Microsoft Outlook for their email back then. So it spread insanely fast. Within 24 hours, it was global. It infected 45 million machines and caused billions Ugh. of damage to corporate networks. Both the UK Parliament and the Pentagon had to shut down their systems for a while to avoid infection and kind of get a handle Dang. on it. And within a week, they had traced it back to the culprit, who was a Filipino computer student named oh. Onel de Guzman. And <gasps> police came to his door and they interviewed him and he sort of said, I, I might have done it on accident. I don't really know. 
But either way, <laughs> at the time, the Philippines had no hacking laws at all. And so <gasps> no no charges were ever filed. It was just sort of a, oh my you know, gosh. don't ever do this again, young man, kind of thing. So this article, it sort of goes into the history of it, but to me, it's almost largely a fascinating look into what it takes to do investigative journalism. Because this author mm. is writing a book and he decided to track down Onel de Guzman over in the Philippines. And he just said, you know, I wanted to go interview this guy for the chapter on the love bug virus. Mm-hmm. And in searching for him online, you know, he's looking for any sort of reference to this guy in what he called a forum dedicated to the Philippine underworld. And I have no idea (laughs) what that looks like. Wow. But he found somebody had posted a message that seemed to imply that de Guzman ran a mobile phone repair shop in the Quiapo district of Manila. So the author was basically like, "Okay, cool. I'm going to fly to Manila. I'm going to find the mobile phone repair shop. I'm going to find this guy. And he discovered upon his arrival that there were dozens of phone repair shops. It was like a, Mm. a retail area where just lots and lots of people all went to get their phones repaired. So he didn't actually speak Tagalog. And so he just wrote down Onel de Guzman's name on a piece of paper and started wandering around showing it to people and looking to anybody to show him his name and seeing if anybody recognized it. And eventually somebody Uh did. And they Uh, said, oh, uh, yeah, that guy works at a different mall over in Manila. It's not this place. It's a different one. So he goes over to that uh, shopping center. He wanders around for hours, again, just sort of holding out this piece of paper with this guy's name on it. Until finally, somebody again recognized it and pointed him to a stall at the very back of the mall. And again, he's waiting for hours for de Guzman to show up. Like, at this point, he's done nothing except suffer to find this guy. Oh. And eventually, he did find him. De Guzman showed up, and he admitted fully intentionally writing and disseminating the virus. He's like, well, it's been 20 years. I can, you know, <laughs> tell you the story now. Right. And he said what it was, all he wanted to do was steal internet access passwords because at the time he couldn't afford internet service. He never oh. intended it for it to leave the Philippines because it wouldn't have done him any good to have passwords yeah. to internet accounts from other countries. He needed a Filipino Not usable. account. Yeah. Right. But he just didn't grasp how quickly this thing <sighs> would spread. It didn't oh occur to God. him. And he basically sent it to one person to test just to even <gasps> see if he got a, a, a password back. And then he went out drinking. And the next thing he knew, his mother had called him saying the police were looking for a hacker (gasps) in Manila. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. And so he had his mother hide his computer equipment and he played dumb. And he's like, I really never intended for this to cause all this damage. I was really sorry. But I mean, essentially what brought everyone down globally or not everyone, but a huge number was basically an experiment, like a pilot or a beta. Yeah. Like a college kid just going, I'd like to save 50 bucks a month. Like he wasn't trying to damage anything. He just wanted a free internet account. That's amazing. And he said, you know, he said, sometimes I get my picture on the internet. My friends say, hey, it's you. I'm a shy person. I don't want this. That was his, you know, please don't, (laughs) don't turn Mm -hmm. this into a big thing, which of course the author's like, oh, sure, I won't. And then he did and he published it on (laughs) Pussy. But... uh, But it was fascinating. I think, you know, people underplay, I think, the amount of physical labor and really tedious effort that goes into doing some of this research. Yes. You know, once you find the guy, it's the goldmine of the whole story. But sometimes you got to wander around a phone repair area in Manila for hours on end. Right. The language. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. This one comes from the BBC. The Valentine's Day snake puzzle. Like a physical puzzle or like a philosophical puzzle? (laughs) I think it's more of like um, a puzzling situation. Okay. Let's just say. Mm -hmm. Um, Basically what happened was somebody abandoned 29 valuable snakes in February. Live snakes. 
live snakes in pillowcases. Whoa. Uh, so basically the evening before Valentine's Day of this year, some firefighters who were working at a fire station were asked to deal with an unusual incident. So the location was a bin around the back of their station where 13 royal python snakes, each between two and four feet long, were tucked away in a Buzz Lightyear pillowcase bedding set. <laughs> um, the RSPCA was called. The officer who arrived at the scene took the cold and already lethargic animals home to warm them up because they can't survive like that. And there's this really sad picture of like a Buzz Lightyear pillowcase that is kind of dirty on the outside Aww. and it's just kind of secured with a zip tie at the top. And it's a little sad. One died, but the rest of them were all in good condition. Um, they took them to a local vet. They checked them out. But then there was another alert that this guy got, and another set of snakes had been abandoned in exactly the same place. What? This time, yeah, one more royal python and then 15 corn snakes were left taped and ziplocked in pink pillowcases. Oh, so they, um, they mixed it up. That's nice. Yeah, and this is where it gets a little bit weird. I mean, like, there's a Northeast reptile rescue led by this guy, Alec Wood. And what this guy said is that it's really unusual to see this kind of volume of snakes. There will always be the occasional snake that has escaped. You'll find them basking in the sun the following day. But for these kinds of numbers, he says, it must have been some kind of trade, possibly some kind of pet shop. But why a pet shop would abandon these snakes, which are quite valuable and a source of money, is something that has everybody really puzzled, right? Yeah, that sounds, I mean, it sounds like it was a black market breeding scheme went wrong somehow. But what, I mean, like you said, they're yeah. worth money. Why would you dump them on the side of the road? Exactly. Specialist snake keepers can't think who the reptiles could have belonged to. And so this has kind of taken the like underground reptile hobbyist community uh, <laughs> by storm, because if someone was just trying to get rid of a collection that big, people would know about it. And nobody has heard any word about this. If you talk to people who are in the reptile community, as they put it, or run shops, there hasn't really been someone looking to get rid of a large collection or at least, you know, posting in those groups and forums saying, hey, I'm trying to rehome these guys. Right. The forums and, dedicated to the herpetology underworld. <laughs> I mean, you know, we got forums for everything. That's and right. what they found in the snakes that had been dumped is that some of the royal pythons were varieties with very rare colors or patterns, which are known as morphs. And they're fairly expensive. I mean, these are, huh. you know, they've got a picture of some of the little snacks and it's really cute. These little pythons arranged on their own paperwork. I mean, they're gorgeous. I, I'm not a reptile person, but they kind of almost have like leopard spots. And they're thinking if an owner who had had a collection like this with variations and, you know, right, they would know what that, they had. Exactly. And they wouldn't have gotten rid of it. So they're thinking maybe there was like a domestic breakup uh -huh. or an unexpected serious illness or a death as a result of which a friend or a relative was left with a number of huge huge and expensive right. snakes. Like, this is somebody's mom or girlfriend who suddenly decided right. they'd had enough. And <laughs> I can't imagine, though, if someone was truly like, I hate these things, get rid of them, how they would manage to get them all into a pillowcase. Like, you got to be brave enough to go and pick yeah. them up if you're going to yeah. say, get rid of these things. Exactly. It's still stumping the community because with a collection this large and this expensive, people like to brag about it, right? right. And people like to be known for like, these are my snacks. And mm -hmm. there's one more thing that doesn't add up from uh -oh. at least this rehabilitator's perspective. I know it keeps getting deeper. Typically, people who keep corn snakes keep corn snakes. And people who keep royal pythons keep royal pythons. And he thinks that because it was a combo of each, he's thinking that it's foul play. So he's thinking this was a deliberate attempt to stain the reputation of the reptile community. Yeah. It's a conspiracy, <laughs> according to the rehabilitator. I don't know if I'm buying that. That seems a little <laughs> far-fetched. Right. Because asked who would do such a thing, he says, I don't know. <laughs> no, no, no. Somebody 
them with a capital T. You know how they are. Right. Yeah. I mean. (laughs) What they need to do if they want to trace this back is they need to now start looking for who's dumping 15 to 30 aquariums. Like who's got all of the glass (laughs) tanks that they're dumping everywhere. (laughs) Yeah. But um, I hope these little guys are, you know, rehabilitated and okay because they're Yeah, they're, they're adorable. I, I used to have a pet snake, so I, I'm firmly in the pro snake category. I think snakes Aww. are great. They're really adorable. They curl around your finger and it's cute. Next link. Next link. So the title of this one is from Scientific American. It's called Scientists Waited Two and a Half Years to See Whether Bacteria Can Eat Rock. Oh, um, that's that's a long timeline. <laughs> yeah, spoiler alert, they can. And they had sus- <laughs> they had suspected that they could, but part of the problem is that this is a process that takes a really long time. Two and a half years actually it turns out is a very very sped up version of the process. So, mm. the main question that was on everybody's mind obviously is where does dirt come from? I mean, we sort mm. of we know what dirt is. But where do we get dirt? Why is it all over the place? And the general assumption is it's weathering, right? We know the planet has a core of rock and it just sort Mm -hmm. of weathers down into dirt. But the science has always been very unclear on what exactly that means, like rain and wind, Mm -hmm. etc. Just don't affect the iron silicate rocks that make up most of the bedrock of the continents because it's underground, right? How do you have weathering when it's completely covered by hundreds, if not thousands of feet of already existing Mm -hmm. dirt? And one of the clues is that it's not simply a dirt layer on top of bedrock. In all areas, there is a transition zone between the dirt and the bedrock, which is called the rindlet zone, where Mm. rock and dirt are interspersed. Basically, there's this really clear sort of dissolving layer where you have a little bit less rock, some dirt gets in, a little bit less until ultimately you're just dirt. Mm -hmm. And tellingly, this layer contains high amounts of ATP, which is the chemical released by metabolizing cells, thus the rindlet zone is definitively teeming with microbes, more so than Ooh. the dirt above. So they said, okay, so we're going to set out to show this. What would this look like if there was a bacteria that it could eat rock? And so first they, uh-huh. had, they said, we have to define what does it mean to eat something? And at its core, eating, they said, is the transfer of electrons for energy. And mm-hmm. theoretically, you could strip electrons from anything if your body was designed for it. But the big catch, as noted, bedrock is largely iron silicate. And iron that has lost electrons becomes oxidized, which is to say rust. And so bacteria that drew iron into their cells that consumed it would quickly become full of rust and die. Mm. So they're like, these bacteria cannot be literally consuming the rocks. It must be a bacteria which is specially designed to be able to strip an electron externally, just kind of by getting snugly with it and just sort of drawing the electron out somehow. Armed with this theory... Scientists at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, the University of Bristol, and Pennsylvania State University got together. They decided they're going to make it happen. And so they started with one of the world's fastest weathering rocks, which are rocks from beneath the Rio Icacos watershed in Puerto Rico. They also picked up some dirt from Puerto Rico's rindlet zone, and they mixed the bacteria with the rocks with no other source of foods. They're like, if these bacteria are alive, they must be eating the rock. Right. And then they had to wait for 30 months. And presumably they kind of kept checking back in and it wasn't until 30 months that they were able to see any sort of effect. But they were. After the two and a half years, the rocks that they put under the microscope now showed little tiny pits (gasps) that are like, I mean, really tiny, like way less than a single micron. 
But very clearly they can compare it to the control and see, yeah, these bacteria have been snacking on this rock. It just takes a really long time. Well, how about that? I mean, it takes a long time. It takes certain bacteria at perfect conditions, but it can happen. Well, and it gives it gives a lot of hope for this idea of like life on other planets. They're like, you know, this life doesn't require water. This life really literally only requires iron silicate rock. So they're basically sort of implying if this can happen here, chances are good it can happen on any planet. And so it almost is one of those like, oh, actually, there's probably life on every planet. (laughs) It's just not life that we're used to considering as life, which is a very popular kind of sci-fi trope, right? Right. And it's not walking around, you know, building casinos. It's literally just munching on rocks over (laughs) eons. But it is, if it can happen here, it can happen pretty much anywhere. And so they say, yeah, there's definitely bacteria out there that can thrive on nothing but rocks. That's amazing. Next link. Next link. This next link comes from Vice in their money section by Jack Dutton, and it's an interview that is titled, This Australian Bartender Found an ATM Glitch and Blew $1.6 Million. Oh, that's a lot. Yes, absolutely. The guy's name is Dan Saunders, and they asked him to kind of describe the loophole and his five months of partying like a millionaire. It's an extract from a podcast they're doing on Spotify. He threw lavish parties. He chartered private jets. He paid off his friend's university fees until the police caught up with him. Yeah, how did they not get him earlier? Like all those things have cameras in front of him. I would think after the first (sighs) morning where they go and they say, whoa, somebody withdrew the entire contents of the ATM. Let's review the footage and see who did that. (laughs) Yeah, this was in like 2011. So, you know, I'd like to think that they did have, you know, cameras and securities and stuff like that. But it's a pretty wild ride. So this is what he said. So I was out for the night trying to get a balance on my account, but it kept giving the message balance unavailable at this time. So he transferred $200 from his credit account to his savings and it said transaction canceled and spat the card out. I thought that was super odd. So I decided to try and get $200 out of my savings account just to see what would happen. It gave me the money. So I went back to the bar and continued drinking. But after I left the bar, I was walking home past the same ATM. I'd been thinking about how odd the whole thing was. So I put the card in again and started playing around. I transferred another $200 and got the money out then 500, then 600, just to see what would happen. I think it was a combination of being tipsy and bored, but I just pushed the envelope, tried again and again. It was like a magic trick. So he called to get a balance on his savings account, which was now $2,000 in debt. There was a lag between what the ATM gave him and what his bank balance was, which meant whatever he spent, he could cover by doing a simple transfer every night between his credit account and his savings. He could, quote, create the money by doing a transfer between one and three in the morning, which is when he realized ATMs go offline. So he basically just had to stay one day ahead. So the first day he spent $2,000, but the second day he transferred $4,000 to make sure the balance didn't stay negative. The transfer at night would go through, then reverse one day later. But if he stayed ahead of the reversal by doing another one and another one and another one, he tricked the system into thinking he had millions. So it was a Ponzi scheme, but he was the only person (laughs) (laughs) getting more and more money from himself. Exactly. And it was something where it would just say, you know, transaction canceled. So they would sort of like remove the proof that this thing had happened, but the results still remained. And so he was able to just continue doing this. And so he goes into how this, you know, ethically, did he have any qualms about spending, quote, someone else's money? He's like, you know, it was just numbers on a screen. It never really felt real. And basically, the bank failed to notice for four and a half months and started kind of getting to him. You know, he started having panic attacks and nightmares and he was 
was talking to his parents who were like, you know, this is bad. And he's like, ah, whatever. And then he started talking to his therapist because his anxiety got so yeah. bad. And they were like, you know, if you turn yourself in, you can actually feel better about this, at least sleep at night. Yeah. He had thought about like maybe just taking the money and going to Spain, but he didn't want to leave his family or his friends without any trace. And mm-hmm. so he just stopped doing the transfers. He contacted the bank in June and July of 2011. They told me, quote, it's a police matter now. We can't talk to you. They will uh-huh. contact you. You're in a lot of trouble. Yeah. And that was it. All he was going to say was that he had 80 grand in a Hilton laundry bag and they were welcome to it. Oh. Then I heard nothing for two years. Wow. Nothing happened for two years after they realized that something had happened. It was always in the back of his mind. He couldn't really move on with his life. The police finally got involved because he did have to turn himself in, even though the bank was aware of it, but nothing was happening. And he had so much guilt and anxiety. The therapist said, you know, turn yourself in. And the way he turned himself in was he did three print interviews and an appearance on national TV <laughs> to really be taken seriously because nobody was really taking him seriously about this being a thing that needed to be resolved for him. <laughs> well, and I can imagine it's like a lot of things where corporately they're like, we don't actually want to admit that this was possible, that somebody right. was able to do this. It's honestly maybe even financially better for us to just keep quiet about this. Maybe they never even would have come after him. If he hadn't decided to go public. Exactly. I think that's one point that at least internally at the bank where they were like, it's going to take a while to fix and solve this kind of transactional bug Mm -hmm. or the off hours or whatever. And so they probably were doing something on the background. But basically the way the court case played out when it finally happened, he thought he was going to get totally thrown under the bus. But the court was weird because, quote, no one actually understood what I did. Not the judge, <laughs> not the prosecutor. So it was very odd. There were many blank looks. The bank provided minimal evidence. So it was really just a case of bad Dan, cop a whack, and that's it. I pled guilty, got one year inside. Then I was allowed out on an 18-month community corrections order. Oh, he didn't even have to pay the money back. They're just like, all right, go do your time and you're done? I mean, kind of a light slap on the wrist. Wow. I mean, obviously, you're going to have some kind of felony record or whatever else. Right. Maybe he was a felony. <laughs> it didn't really even say what the supercharge was. And it's Australia, and I'm not really sure how their court right. system works either. Right. But, you know, if you had a chance to party like a millionaire for five months and then spend a little over a year or a year and a half in prison... I don't know. Yeah. I mean, and almost, I mean, the two years of anxiety, I think, would be almost worse than the one year in prison. You know, you do your one year. It's like, you know, it's going to end and then your conscience is clear. But to be told by a bank, this is a police matter and then nothing happens for For two two years. That's crazy. I would have I would have absolutely gone insane. I could not have dealt with that. Yep. Yep. Well, at least, you know, he's learned his lesson, it sounds like. (laughs) And if he's explaining the trick, they must have fixed it by now because there's no way they would be putting instructions on how to do this out there. Exactly. His final quote in this interview is pretty great. The interviewer asked, what's it been like going back to working in a bar earning $22 (laughs) an hour after being a millionaire? And he said, I learned that faced with temptation, it's easy to lose your true self, but I'm slowly getting back to normal. I felt like Macaulay Culkin after Home Alone 2, like you're hot one minute and then you're sort of not the next and it's a bit hard to take. There was definitely a hangover time though when I thought, geez, maybe I should have gone to Spain after all. What a what a weird analogy. It's like, oh let's philosophically reminisce. Oh no, it's like Macaulay Culkin. Oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> and not only Macaulay Culkin, but from Home Alone 2. That's not, right. very not Home Alone one, but <laughs> I feel like this guy has watched that movie a lot of times. You know, I I think you might be onto something there. Yeah. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. Well, this one comes from the 10 blog at medium.com. It's uh, maybe hopeful. I don't know. I'm not crossing my fingers yet. Let me ask you this Do you have allergies? 
I do. I have cedar fever as a good Texan who's been here a while. Right, everybody has. does. Mm-hmm. And I've got, I think, dust mites and I think dust mites and cedar are my biggies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I have a lot of sort of just nasal. I'm always stuffed up all the time, but I've never actually been tested for what I'm allergic to because I feel like like mm-hmm. you, if they come back and tell me it's cedar, it's like, well, that doesn't do me any good because it's everywhere. <laughs> that knowledge helps me not at all. So yep. <laughs> I just continue to suffer. But the specific allergy to this article is talking about is cat allergies. And there are, in fact, a whole lot of people, apparently, who are horribly allergic to cats or their children are very allergic to cats. And they love cats Mm -hmm. and they desperately want a cat, but they can't because of allergies. So there is this sort of hole in the market for a hypoallergenic cat. You know, they do actually have some hypoallergenic breeds of dogs where the dogs have uh, literal hair instead of fur. There's sort of a biological difference and the fur mm-hmm. creates this dander that you can be allergic to, but the hair doesn't. So if you have a, I think a purebred poodle is one of the hypoallergenic species, you can have a dog even if you have dog allergies. And that actually is true mm-hmm. of a lot of things, it turns out. An allergy is always to a very specific protein. So, if, for example, people with peanut allergies can eat things cooked in peanut oil because it's lipids only. Unless it's been contaminated with some of the protein, pure lipids of the thing that you're allergic to do not cause an allergic reaction. And Hmm. in most cases, the thing that you're allergic to is not cats in general. It's a very particular protein in cats, right? And Mm -hmm. so, like, for example... And there's saliva, right? Right. And so, for example, like you said, you're allergic to dust. It turns... You're not actually allergic to dust. You are allergic to the poop of dust mites that live in dust. (gasps) That's that's just a fun little fact there for you. (laughs) But... Well, I mean, who would not be allergic to something that... Exactly. Right. (laughs) But but because of this, they basically have isolated the exact protein in cats that causes an allergic reaction. It's called FEL-D1, FEL for feline, I assume. And so if theoretically you could create a cat that simply didn't create this protein, you would have a hypoallergenic Uh cat. And there have been a lot of different attempts. They note that back in 2000, a biotech company named Alerca claimed to have bred a strain of cats naturally that had less of the protein. They just sort of tried to aim the cats by breeding into cats that were producing less of it. And they advertised them heavily. They sold them for between $4,000 and (gasps) $28,000 each. But uh, it turns out it was just a scam. Like oh, people, no. people who spent these thousands of dollars on these cats, they got them and they had massive allergic reactions. They were completely allergic oh. to these cats. And in 2013, an ABC News expose tested these cats that Alerca was selling and said they have just as much of the protein as any other random cat on the street. Oh. Which at that point, most owners had already discovered, but they couldn't get their money back. Right. And it was a big fraud. So uh, that was Ugh. that was out. But now we have this lovely thing called CRISPR, which... Uh, Oh, that's right. The gene splicer. Right. And I had to have kind of a review. I didn't really understand, I think, what CRISPR was. The idea of CRISPR is that you have a molecule that can go in and attach to a specific line of DNA and snip it out. Mm -hmm. And so you're basically Mm -hmm. you're creating this drug cocktail that is tailored for a specific sequence of genes. And then you inject it. And it goes because your DNA is in every cell. So it has to go throughout Mm -hmm. your whole body and snip that bit of DNA out of your whole body. And so it is it is something that works to a varying degree for various things. But Indoor Biotechnologies is working on a CRISPR-based drug that will snip the protein from the living cats. Right. So you don't (gasps) have to breed a new cat. You could take your existing cat, jab it a few times, however many times is necessary, theoretically, and make your cat no longer produce this protein. 
They've gotten tissue samples from about 50 different cats, and they looked for patterns in the section of DNA that was known to code for the FELD1 mm -hmm. protein. They sort of isolated one. So far, they've gotten through individual cell tests where it can definitely go into a single cell and snip mm -hmm. that DNA out and the cell continues yeah, to live. Yeah, but an entire complex living organism. <laughs> right. It's a They've got a ways to go. They next need to do tissue samples where it can go through many cells in like a little chunk of a biopsy. And then step mm -hmm. three would be a whole cat. Now, they note that they do not have any idea yet whether this bit of DNA is important for anything else, right? Like, these are sometimes the, mm -hmm. uh, the accidental side effects of genetic modification is you just take out right. one little bit of DNA and it turns out, oh, that's the thing that gave them fur at all. And now you have horribly right. hairless cats. Or that's right. the thing that grew a liver and now they're horribly ill and they can't live. We have no idea what we're playing with. And so they freely admit this could all come crashing down when they actually get into full animal trials. Awesome. So it's, it's got a long way to go. We're nowhere near having an injection that can make your cat hypoallergenic. But science is working on a lot of different stuff. And this is one of the things that they're working on, apparently. I'm stoked to hear it. My husband is pretty allergic to cats, but it turns out he's just as allergic to dogs. Oh, no. He refuses to live life without a dog, which I am fully behind. So he's just gonna, he just puts up with it? He just puts up with it. Mm -hmm. He just kind of suffers. But if there's hope on the horizon, that, yeah. is, that is good news. Because we've also had like friends and relatives who are so severely cat allergic that they weren't able to come and even just visit in our home because right. that, obviously that, that protein is going to be everywhere. But right. I guess so is dust mite poop. So Right, right. Well, that's what they said is a lot of these environmental allergies, most of them, there's really no way to avoid them completely. You know, you're just sort of at the whim of how bad is this environment versus, you know, don't go into the right. house where a cat lives, but there's cats wandering around outside. I mean, you're always running the risk of exposure if you're that sensitive. Mm -hmm. They're cute. They might be worth it. They're so worth it. Oh, they're so worth it. <laughs> I'm biased, but they're so worth That's it. That's right. <laughs> All right. Next link. Next, next link. link. This next link comes from Discover by Kate Golombiewski, and it's called you can't stop touching your face because you're subconsciously sniffing your hands. Uh, how did they oh. know? <laughs> <laughs> well, they had some studies, of course. Uh -huh. But, you know, we've all had, I've kind of gotten a little bit of that don't touch your face fatigue where I'm definitely not as, you know, conscientious conscious of yeah. it as I had been maybe a month or two ago. But the idea is that we're subconsciously touching our own faces a lot of the time because we're sniffing our hands and we don't even realize that we're doing it, right? So we all know by now that we're touching our faces all the time. Some behavioral studies have put the numbers at more than a dozen times per hour. Wow. And often the face touching is accompanied by, quote, increased airflow into the nostrils, mm. what we know is sniffing. Right. So many researchers, including a team led by Noam Sobel at Israel's Wiseman Institute of Science, they argue that we sniff our hands so much in part because we're picking up chemical signals or pheromones that tell us about the people around us. And it's mm. obviously unconscious. We, When we're picking up these olfactory symbols, we learn a lot about a person's mental state, about their physical state, whether they're healthy, whether they're sick. And this is a large part of how we kind of understand the world around us and help us make decisions, right? Well, yeah. Um, I mean, that's, it's evolutionary. You have to, if, if you know that something smells bad, you don't necessarily have to know why it smells bad. Like you could have mm -hmm. evolved to basically say that's danger, even if you don't really mm -hmm. know why. Exactly. Yeah. So one well-studied example is fear sweat. The sweat that we produce when we're anxious has a really particular scent. And when we smell it on others, whether we realize it or not, we trust them less. Hmm. So like so, they actually were able to quantify what does fear sweat, what chemicals are different in fear sweat, mm -hmm. and then sniff this rag. Which of these rags do you trust more? <laughs> <laughs> 
it may have been associated with person and you bring a, a good point there may be other subconscious symbols you know like we've also done facial phototyping type mm -hmm. of things where like people with eyes that are closer together or further apart can elicit different things and even you know women who are menstruating or are on birth control where those are kind of suppressed mm -hmm. or regulated differently can have different reactions to some of these subconscious symbols mm -hmm. but this one really just goes into smelling right, right? so just whatever it is that you're smelling you are definitely smelling it Exactly. And and the reason that we're thinking about face touching and sniffing too is because in 2015, this team did a study about people who are subconsciously smelling themselves after a handshake. So, you know, after a handshake, <laughs> maybe we kind of like touch our nose or fix our right. hair or something. And they were able to kind of track that there's definitely sniffing going on. Wow. That is probably just some, you know, monkey brain behavior that we don't even realize that's what we're doing. And we're not even aware of the data that's being processed in our brains as it's happening. Right. It's just you get that gut feeling of, I don't like that guy and you don't necessarily know why but possibly part of it is because you sniff the sweat residue of his handshake and we're like oh no that's that guy can't be trusted <laughs> yep so so part of the reason they're looking at this right now is because we've got all the social distancing so we don't have the handshakes and the close contact that usually gives us a chance to smell others even subconsciously mm -hmm. but now that even we're still doing the zoom meetings and the facetime happy hours and all the social distancing we're still touching our own faces even though there's no one else to smell because now the sniffing we're doing is self-directed oh. <laughs> we're sniffing ourselves how am i doing today let's find out pretty much there's a really great sniff result self-reported image <laughs> they did that I, <laughs> I recommend you actually check out and it's titled do you ever sniff slash smell your blank <laughs> and they've got a color coding oh, that wow. shows whether you sniff this rarely or never occasionally or often and they've gauged it to romantic partner that's an often like the right. biggest pie chart thing is you sniff your romantic partner often mm -hmm. worn shirt kind of split between often and occasionally mm -hmm. strangers rarely um <laughs> with never but i think that this is again self-reported so this is right. what we're consciously aware of sniffing but they go in through the armpit, hand from armpit, hands, own children, <laughs> oh worn underpants, worn socks or shoes. They wow. really just went in great detail to understand what we're aware we're sniffing versus what we're not. Right, aware what we're, we're actually sniffing. sniffing. Yeah, that's really creepy. Like I'm imagining how they, whatever sensors they use to determine like, no, no, there's some inhalation going on there <laughs> as you touch your face. Like I'm imagining this, you know, turbulent infrared camera that's able to see like, no, look what, oh, they just totally sniffed in. <laughs> oh, we got a sniffer, guys. That's we right. got a definite sniffaging. <laughs> Oh, it's so delightful. So the next time you're in a Zoom meeting where people are talking and hold up by themselves, watch their hands. You might actually find them flying to their face in a self-comforting, self-sniff mood, That's right. which makes you a superior observer, I'm sure. Well, just don't try to sniff your computer screen because it isn't going to work. Not yet, anyway. No, not yet. Who knows what the future will bring? I can't wait. <laughs> uh, next link. Next link. All right. Well, this one actually, uh, it's a quick one. It went around. I think a lot of us already saw this. Japanese Aquarium urges public to video chat eels oh, who are forgetting yay. humans exist. Did you see this? Was this on your <laughs> I, collection? I of did. And it's been on my feed just in a number of different things. And at first I was like, that's really cute. But then I was like, oh, it's really because we just need to desensitize them to human faces looking at them. Like, right. Well, I guess that makes them social or whatever. Well, no, that that's... I mean, don't eels normally hide in nature? Isn't that just them reverting back to a natural state? Yeah, that's basically what they said is these are natural 
particularly shy creatures, and the 300 that live in the Sumida Aquarium in Tokyo had gotten used to people because there were so many people going around. They claim, at least, that this does have a legitimate use other than we want people to still be able to see them when we open back up, which is that the keepers have a much harder time monitoring their health when they're constantly Mm. under the sand. They say, you know, when they're up, we can kind of do quick checks on them. We can make sure they're good. We promise this isn't just bad for business. You know, we care about the eels as well. So, yeah, it's for their own good. That's what they say anyway. (laughs) But so the, the way they solved this, of course, as reported, was they put five iPads facing the tank and they urged people to log into this particular app and do short FaceTime visits with the eels. And they said, just smile and wave, speak quietly, but don't yell. You don't want to scare them. Yeah. And they it was yeah. for a limited time. They called it the Face Showing Festival. And it was only for two days. Oh. And a whole lot of people reported that they desperately tried to. And like the queue was full. There were so many people yeah. who were super eager I to bet. participate in this. And so it, a lot of people didn't get to. And a lot of people were very upset that because it was iPads and FaceTime, Android users were not able to participate. And so (laughs) there was a bias in technology. That's right. And the aquarium noted that they were just flooded with requests like, please, please put just one Android system up there so that we can participate, too. And they're like, "Eh, we got enough, which is the face. (laughs) We're sorry. Maybe next time. And you got to think, you know, maybe maybe this would be something that other zoos would do. I don't know. Like the eels, I think, probably can't tell the difference between a little video of a person and a real person outside the tank. But it would feel like a lot of animals could tell, right? Like you're not going to fool a gorilla into thinking that that's a real person outside their enclosure. Yeah, probably true. But And of course, you know, (laughs) if you want to get in on the eel action, there's plenty of other webcams out there that are running full time. You can go to, I think almost every aquarium has got something live that you can go and watch and be soothed (laughs) by the jellyfish. And I'm super into all of the like, zoo is empty, aquarium is empty. We took penguins on a tour. We took sloths on a tour. That was such a cute video. There are so many different aquariums and zoos that are doing this too. And just like getting to see them kind of look at other ones is so so wonderful Mm -hmm. and enriching. Yeah, it's very heartwarming. Of course, you know, that's when they discover like, oh, wait a second. This is all a giant scam. We need to escape. Like this is when the zoos turn on us. They they realize (laughs) now's our chance. There's only a few people. We can take them. Get the penguin army together. Revolutions in the air. Why not have that (laughs) apply to the animals as well, right? Exactly. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. There are, of course, a lot of articles that we did not get to. Some of those articles include Antarctica versus science, the imaginary American town that became a tourist attraction, And a little frightening here, AI designs computer chips for more powerful AI. Just to, you know, put a little terror in your heart right before we sign off here. You know, yeah, let's go exponential. Why not? (laughs) Well, before Skynet is upon us, we hope that you have a very uh, interesting week full of lots of interesting things. We'll have more of those for you on DamnInteresting.com. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. And I'm Angela Epley. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye bye.